Good morning, Christ Central. So good to see you this morning. My name is Peter, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going through this year a sermon series uh, through the book of Acts, and it's called Being the Church. And we're, um, as we're going through the book of Acts, we're looking at the early church to show us and remind us of what it really means to be the church for the glory of God, for the good of our members, and the good of our neighbors. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll be reading chapter 13, verses 13 through 43, as we learn from Paul's first sermon about telling the gospel. This is God's holy fallible word. Starting from verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, uh, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him 
everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. You know, for most Christians, there's probably nothing more daunting and difficult than to share the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus. But as hard as it may seem, there's only a few things more rewarding and more extraordinary than our calling to tell the gospel to those who don't know Jesus because people telling the gospel to people is what God uses to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And although most of us aren't called to preach from behind a pulpit, All of us as followers of Jesus are called to winsomely tell the gospel where we live, work, and play. So as we hear the Apostle Paul preach the gospel, we're going to see what we can learn about telling the gospel to others. And what we're going to see is that as we tell the gospel, we remember that first, the gospel is for people. Second, the gospel is a message. And third, The gospel requires a response. Our passage picks up from the sermon we heard a couple weeks ago. And if you remember, uh, as the church in Antioch was worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit marked Paul and Barnabas along along with Mark uh, for a missionary uh, journey to the West to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And in the middle of this trip, verse 13 tells us that Mark abandons the team and returns to Jerusalem. And there's a whole fascinating backstory to this that I recommend that you research. But Mark leaves, and Paul and Barnabas, they continue on their way, and they end up here in a place called Antioch of Pisidia, which is a city in modern-day western Turkey. It's a foreign land to Paul and Barnabas. Now here, the story slows down, and we hear Paul preach his very first sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And the first thing we see is that the gospel is for people. There's a couple observations about Paul and Barnabas from our story. First, they looked for people. And second, they connected with people. First, this missionary team, they looked for people. Because verse 14 says that on the Sabbath day, they went in to the synagogue. Synagogues are different from the Jewish, the one Jewish temple located in Jerusalem. Uh, We don't know when and where synagogues first began, but they began to pop up in both Palestine and the Jewish diaspora uh, throughout ancient Mesopotamia. And the word synagogue literally means gathering of people. And the synagogue of an area was a local community center where Jewish life took place. They did school there. They ate there. Hotelers um, uh, stayed there. Uh, The court was there. Political meetings took place there. Charities were collected and distributed there. And as our passage mentions, the Bible, Scripture was read and translated, interpreted there as well. 
It was a Jewish community center in the fullest sense of the word. This is where people were, and so this is where Paul and Barnabas went. He went straight to the Jewish synagogues, which meant that he would first engage the Jews before reaching out to the Gentiles. And Paul consistently uses this strategy throughout his missionary journeys. You know, one of the reasons for this was that if Paul had first preached to the local Gentiles, uh, the Jews would have rejected him outright. But by first going to the synagogues, he has a chance to win over some of his own people, the Jews. But more importantly, Paul has the opportunity to meet Gentile God-fears present in these Jewish synagogues. And what we later see is that these God-fears emerge as the most receptive group uh, to the gospel in the entire Roman Empire. And when they come to Christ, they form a bridge and a network of relationships to help reach the much larger Gentile community. And this is helpful because when Paul got kicked out of the Jewish synagogues, which he usually did, he would already have relationships that he would be connected to, to the larger, broader Gentile community. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. His calling and mission was to bring the gospel to the nations, but he had a method and strategy to do that. He would first go to the Jewish synagogues and then to the broader Gentile community. Paul saw the gospel as so massively universal and so gloriously beautiful that it had to be shared with the entire world. And so he looked for people to preach this gospel to. His life, his mission, his priority, even his strategy and method was to preach the gospel to people. And so this missionary team looked for people, but we also see, second, that they connected with people as well. And we see that from the first part of Paul's sermon. Once Paul and Barnabas enter the synagogue, uh, and after the scriptures read, the religious leaders invite Paul and Barnabas uh, to, to share a word of encouragement. And so Paul, he accepts and he stands up, and he, as he opens his, his sermon, we hear Paul from verses 16 through 25 give a, a drive-through history of the Old Testament. He alludes to Abraham. He talks about the people in Egypt. Uh, he mentions Joshua and the judges, and he talks about Samuel, uh, King Saul, and King David. And then he describes John the Baptist as he finally introduces this people to the name of Jesus. Israel's Savior. And Paul, he's a master at this, because this is Paul's first and longest of seven sermons we have recorded in the book of Acts. But each time he preaches, he's preaching to different audiences, and he begins with where his hearers were in order to connect with them for the sake of the gospel. So to the Greeks, he quoted Greek poetry. To those in Lystra, he talks about nature and the sun and, and um, uh, the, the sun and, and the skies. And to the Jews, as we read in our passage, he sets up the gospel with over 1,800 years of cultural and religious Jewish history. And for the very first time, these people hear the name of Jesus. Paul connected with them as he told them the gospel. You know, when I was at JMU a very, very long time ago, uh, go Dukes, um, our campus ministry, Agape Christian Fellowship, ha had a uh, senior banquet at the end of each year, and the seniors would get a brief moment to address the entire fellowship. 
And so I remember attending my wife's senior banquet, and she uh, went up to address the, 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 the ministry, and I remember her declaring to everyone, studying is overrated, spend time with people. And there was a collective gasp, <gasps> because especially from the girls that she discipled and had and led small groups with, because my wife, out of her class, was the most dedicated, most committed to her studies. She actually had a reputation for that. Um, and uh, not that studying is a bad thing, because it's not, uh, but it dawned on her, I think, that the jobs would come, and they came. The money would be earned, and it was. But what's really important, what's deep, what's real, what will last, are the people that you spend time with. In order to tell the gospel to people, you have to look for and connect with people. This is the most meaningful ways that you can live for Jesus because the gospel is for people. It's meant to be shared with people. It answers the greatest need and deepest problems of people. And so, if the gospel is what's most important to you as a follower of Jesus, and it should, people should be really important in your life. Because you can't share the gospel with anyone if you don't have anyone in your life. Spending time with people, doing life with people, meeting new people, being friends with people is not ever a waste of your time. And for many of us, the pandemic has disrupted and disoriented so many of our social rhythms, right? It's, it's, it's kind of reset a lot of our relationships. And I think that can be a good thing. Because it gives us a fresh start on how we can think about intentionally spending our time with people. You know, none of us here are going to be able to share the gospel with every single person living in Northern Virginia. But for the sake of the gospel, can you make a friend? Can you make two friends? Is the gospel important enough for you so that the only people you're hanging out with aren't just other Christians? Being friends with unbelievers and telling them the gospel as opportunities arise because you care for them as a friend is one of the most effective ways that we can follow Paul's example of going into the synagogues and looking for and connecting with people. Because today, now more than ever, you really do need relational capital before you can share your faith. And it's with doing that because the gospel is for people. As we continue to hear Paul's sermon, we also see that second, the gospel is a message. In verse 26 through 41, we hear the rest of Paul's sermon, and uh, he tells them the gospel message. And there's a number of ways to explain the gospel, uh, as, as I'm sure many of you guys know. And, and our passage shows us at least four ways we can explain the gospel message. First, as a gospel plan. Second, as gospel events. Third, as gospel promises. And fourth, as gospel invitation. First, the gospel is a plan. In verse 26, Paul ties together this rich heritage traced from Abraham 18 centuries ago to the gospel message of salvation. In other words, the gospel was and is God's plan for the world. It's not a course correction to a mistake. And, and this is why I love a Reformed tradition, because one of the things that, that we um, uh, embrace is something called covenant theology. 
And what covenant theology basically says is that the Bible shows us from the very beginning all the way to the very end that all of history has been a part of God's eternal and gracious redemptive plan. God planned from the very beginning, even before time began, to create, redeem, and renew the world. And throughout the Bible, we see the unfolding plan of God to create humanity, be betrayed by humanity, to be patient with humanity, and to choose humanity through whom which a Savior would one day come to redeem and reconcile the whole world and one day even renew it. The gospel is a plan. Second, the gospel are events. From verse 27 through 29, Paul tells them about the events of Jesus' death. And, 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 and what we see is that the Jewish leaders unjustly uh, tried and condemned Jesus. And they had Jesus executed by crucifying him on a cross. And in verses 30 through 37, Paul tells them about Jesus' resurrection. That this man that they had executed actually rose again from the dead. And he showed up and showed himself to all these witnesses. The gospel is most fundamentally a set of events in history. Right? Jesus was born on a specific date, uh, in a specific location, to specific parents. Um, these are facts. They happened. He physically died. He physically resurrected from the dead. He physically showed himself to a number of witnesses. And, um, and, and so the New Testament records for us all of these historical events. These are facts. Because the gospel are events. Third, the gospel includes promises. In verses 38 and 39, we see at least two of the many, many promises of the gospel. Verse 38 says, Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And many of us understand this. In verse 39, also says that by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed here is the same root word Paul uses over and over again throughout his letters, and it can actually be translated as the word justified. And um, the New King James Version actually uses this word as its translation says, by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. And so we see here, the promise of justification by faith. The forgiveness of sins and justification by faith are two of the greatest gospel promises we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And what we hear here in seed form as Paul preaches these gospel promises in Antioch, we see fully flowered later in his letter to these believers in the book of Galatians. Because when we read the letter to the Galatians, we hear Paul very loudly and persistently remind them of these gospel promises, the forgiveness of sins and the justification by faith. Because if all the gospel entailed was a set of historical events, it would mean nothing for us. So what if Jesus died? So what if he, raised, he, was, uh, he rose again from the dead? If it has nothing to do with us. But his death and his resurrection completely changed the course of history, and it changed our lives as well. It means something for us. Because when Jesus died, he accomplished the unthinkable. He got what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. Our sins are forgiven, 
and we're now justified, accepted, righteous in the sight of God. And because of it, one day when Jesus returns, we too, like him, will rise again to live forever with him. These are amazing, amazing gospel promises. Fourth, the gospel also concludes and always concludes with an invitation. We see an invitation to the gospel in verses 39 through 41. Verse 39 says, everyone who believes is freed. And verses 40 and 41 warn us, beware scoffers, be astounded and perish. We're invited to believe the gospel or reject the gospel, to choose life or choose death, to repent and believe or reject and perish. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this gospel invitation he extends to you today. And notice what it says in verse 43, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. God, who loves the very people who rebel against him, cheat on him, run away from him, disobey him, that this God gave up what was most precious to himself so that the whole world, so that you might be fully know God and be fully known by God, forgiven and justified. This is at the heart of Christianity. Not that what we can do for God, no matter how many people we tell the gospel to, but what God has graciously done, lowering and humbling himself, giving up the life of his own son because he loves you and wants you to be his own. This is the gospel message, and it's the greatest message in the world. And as the body of Christ, because of grace, we get to tell this gospel message with our words. Yes, we're to demonstrate it with our deeds, and there have been a number of times we've uh, been encouraged to do this uh, throughout the sermon series, right? We're, we're called to um, care for the poor, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to protect the oppressed, to seek justice where injustice is found. But as a church, we must also declare the gospel with our words. And this is why we preach the gospel as we gather as a church. And this is why we have a high view of preaching. Because preaching isn't just one of the many things that we do as a church, but preaching the gospel and hearing the gospel preached is probably one of the most important things we do as the gathered church on Sundays. But as the scattered church, Mondays through Saturdays, as followers of Jesus, we're also called to preach or tell the gospel as well. Many of you have invited people to church. I saw a bunch of people invited to church, guests uh, on Christmas Eve, and, and that was awesome to see. And um, inviting someone to church is a powerful way to welcome your friends or family to hear the gospel. And I want to encourage you to continue doing that, to continue inviting your friends and family to church. Some of you have never invited anyone to church, and you're, and you're scared to death to do that. And I want to encourage you to begin inviting your friends and family to church, because inviting them and welcoming them in is one great way they can hear the gospel. But inviting people to church is just one way for people to hear the gospel. It's not the only way. And maybe more importantly, it's not the same way as, as a friend personally sharing the gospel with them. It's a powerful and persuasive thing when a good friend who lives life with you, 
shares meals with you, enjoys life with you, is there for you, if a friend is the one telling you about their Savior who loves them and cares for them. Because telling the gospel isn't just for pastors or professional Christians on Sundays, and it doesn't, um, it, it's for every follower of Jesus in your everyday relationships. The follower of Jesus is called to both demonstrate the gospel with their deeds and declare the gospel with their words. And when the Christian does this, when they declare and demonstrate the gospel, it can be a powerful and beautiful thing. And before I get to the final point, I want to mention a couple books to help resource you. Uh, The first is a book called Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. And this is a short, practical book that will help you think through how to go from normal conversations to gospel conversations. And the second is called Making Sense of God. And just a warning, this book is dense, but it's also very insightful. uh, And it's written for the modern atheist. Uh, But I think every Christian should read this because our country isn't mainly a Christian country anymore. Did you know that? Uh, We're post-Christian America. And so because we live in in a post-Christian world, before you do evangelism, you really have to do pre-evangelism. And so this book will kind of help you think through what kinds of questions many people living in a post-Christian world are asking about Christianity. And so we should pursue resources like this because the gospel is a message we're all called to tell. And lastly, the gospel requires a response. In verses 42 and 43, we see that everyone who heard the gospel responds to the gospel invitation. Some went home and continued to live their own life as it was, and that's one response to the gospel, right? Not responding to the gospel is a response. And a lot of people won't respond to you when you tell them the gospel. Someone once said that it takes 18 times for someone to hear the gospel before they're ready to make a decision. That's a lot of times to to telling someone the gospel. But, you know, God works in mysterious ways, and we don't know all the ways God uses relationships and conversations and circumstances and even emotions, thoughts, and desires for someone to finally get the gospel, for it to be true and for it to become beautiful to them. But our job isn't to make the gospel true and make someone believe the gospel. Our job is simple. It's simply to share and tell the gospel. And so when we do, the Holy Spirit does a rest. And when he does, it's absolutely incredible. Our passage tells us that after hearing Paul, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And if you actually skip ahead to verse 49, we read that the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. There was a gospel movement that happened in Galatia because people preached the gospel. When people declare the gospel, the Holy Spirit usually works. And and so... I encourage you and, 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 um, and exhort you to tell the gospel where you live, work, and play. Because when you do, people realize that their religion won't save them. Their pleasures won't fulfill them. And that there's no better way to live and no one better to follow than the Savior who loves them and wants what's best for them. And when people respond to the gospel in this way, it's incredible because there's nothing more rewarding than God using ordinary people 
telling an extraordinary story to bring people from death to life. When people hear the gospel, the direction of lives are altered, the brokenness of families are changed, the tr- generations are impacted, and eternities are changed. This is what happened in Galatia. And this is one of the reasons why we're planting a church in Tyson's. And I'm telling you about Tyson's every time I preach because it's so important. Um, and one of the things that's been helpful as I've been explaining to people about what we're doing is that um, we're, we're not planting a satellite campus. We're planting a church. Churches primarily, maybe not only, but they primarily make satellites for their own people near the satellite location. And so if Christ Central Tyson's were to have been a satellite, the main purpose would be to accommodate for our Tyson's uh, members and our members living in and around Tyson's and even our Arlington members to have a more closer, more convenient location to go to. But we're not, we're not going out as a satellite. We're going out as a church plant. And our main purpose will be to go as a team and welcome the broken, the lost, the doubting in and around Tyson's. And the hope and dream is that they meet Jesus and trust Jesus and give their life to follow Jesus because we befriended them and shared meals with them and did life with them and enjoyed life with them and were there for them and told them and showed them the gospel. In other words, Christ Central Tyson's isn't for us. It's for everyone else. And our main hope and dream and prayer is that they respond just like the people we read about and acts respond. And so I want to personally extend an invitation to you. Uh, We're not looking for professional evangelists. No one's an evangelist on the team. No one's a professional evangelist on the team. Certainly not me. But even if you've never told anyone the gospel before, but this is something that resonates with you and something that you desire and aspire to and you want to be a part of this work that we're going to be doing in Tyson's, I want to invite you to step out of the comfortable and to let go of what's easy and to join us for what I guarantee will be hard, but also exhilarating and rewarding work as we seek to reach one of the most influential cities in Northern Virginia with the gospel, one friend at a time, one meal at a time, and one conversation at a time. Because I believe the gospel works. I believe the church works. It's been working for the past 2,000 years, and I want to see it work here in Centerville, in Tyson's, and the rest of Northern Virginia. So I want to invite you to our Tyson's Vision Gatherings that happens uh, on the last Sunday of every month. We've got one going on today. Uh, And you can find out more by emailing me or joining the Tyson's um, Plant Interest Group on Planning Center. And so we're going to want and need to see more churches planted everywhere because we want to see more churches to reach Centerville, Tyson's, and the rest of the world. And we need more churches because we need more people in in more communities living out and telling the gospel to their neighbors and friends for their good and for the glory of the Savior. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it's worth all the risks to tell the gospel message to our broken world because it's the only hope we have. It's a great hope we have. And because we've experienced your grace that redeems and restores, we want this not just for us, but for others as well. For your name and the sake of your kingdom. Amen.